0: This episode of the Coin World podcast is brought to you by Amos Advantage, your ultimate destination for coin collecting accessories. Receive free shipping on orders over sixty-five dollars. This is a limited time offer, so shop AmosAdvantage.com today. Welcome to the Coin World podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark.
1: Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. I'm Jeff Stark. And I'm Chris Wolfinch. We have a great show lined up for you today. We're going to talk about how to get started in numismatics as a professional.
2: We're also talking about new uh, 2020 $10 coins being issued to honor the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the pilgrims in massachusetts and the first appearance of a 2019 w america the beautiful quarter dollar in circulation
1: we also have a great interview with ken shaner of osborne coinage in
2: cincinnati the oldest private mint in the united states if you have been enjoying the podcast that we've put out thus far and if you enjoyed this episode Remember to press that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. If you're listening to it on Apple Podcasts, you can just click subscribe. Ditto on Spotify, the Android store, or if you don't use any of those services, you are always welcome to go to our website because we post uh, audio links for all of the podcasts there as well. So remember, if you enjoy this and if you've enjoyed the previous podcasts, we really, you know, we, we need the support. We appreciate hearing from you. We appreciate any of your feedback. And please keep on tuning in, and if you have any friends, colleagues, family, anyone in your life who's interested in coins or who wants to learn a little bit more about numismatics as both a an industry and an intellectual interest, please don't hesitate to share this with them, and please enjoy the rest of the show. So leading off today's
1: episode, we're going to talk about big news from the U.S. Mint. I've heard the saying that April showers bring May flowers, but what do May flowers bring? Pilgrims? Yes. Hey. Groan. <laughs> anyway, so the U.S. Mint has announced that next year it is releasing a gold $10 coin to mark the anniversary of the Pilgrims landing, the Mayflower, you know, the, the old uh, story there at Plymouth Rock. And this is rather startling because the Mint says it has authorization to do it from special congressional authority granted to the Treasury Secretary And they're not calling it a commemorative coin. And you understand that the way commemorative coins work is they have to be suggested in a House of Congress. They have to be passed by by both bodies and eventually signed by the president. And this will have not gone through that process at all. But we're going to have a coin for it. The Mint says don't call it a commemorative, which... To me, you know, Mike White, I believe it was at the mint, said this is not a commemorative coin program and has nothing to do with any proposed legislation. In any event, the uh, the ten dollar coin is gonna be twenty-two karat gold. There's a silver medal that goes with it, so that's that's gonna be a nice component to the program, kind of like how there were silver medals for the World War one hundredth anniversary. Uh, in 2018, and the uh, presidential silver medals. So this doesn't come from legislation in the sense that legislation has not passed, but there was legislation introduced in 2017 by representatives uh, and a representative and a senator from Massachusetts, your home state. Mm. And that legislation, of course, failed. CoinWorld always reports about legislation as it's introduced. If it passes, and then that sparks the process to lead to a commemorative coin. So this has not gone through all that, but it's something that the Mint is going to issue anyway next year.
2: Fascinating. It's good. In honor of Easter, it's nice that they have a 22-carat gold. I think uh, that that's a good... Uh, I think it's nice of them to provide that in honor of, of that's, Easter coming up.
1: Uh, that's about as bad as my... Mayflower, Jeff. That, yep,
2: it absolutely <laughs> was, and I'm, I'm proud to own it. You know, Jeff, both sides of my family actually came over on the Mayflower, interestingly. My dad's mom and my mom's dad are both descended, at least if the, the stories and the genealogy holds up, I believe they're both descended from Mayflower families. Hmm. So I uh, I feel pretty strongly about this one, obviously. So you're
1: going to have to add that to your collection?
2: I, yeah, geez, I'm going to have to scrounge up some money from somewhere and hmm. uh, get myself one.
1: Well, speaking of adding coins to a collection... Ah. I have been on the look, and I have not found any of these yet, but you can confirm mm. that the 2019 W West Point Mint Quarters for have, Lowell have been found. they right to... to be
2: found in circulation. The program, which was announced just a couple of weeks ago, which we reported on, involved the minting of 2 million of each of the next five America the Beautiful Quarters, the five that will be produced in 2019, at the West Point Mint, which is obviously notable because the West Point Mint for its history, has produced almost exclusively bullion coins, though the 2019 W. Lincoln cents being produced this year, there has been a little bit of a change in, in West Point's traditional role and capabilities. So the first two million West Point quarters were put into circulation honoring my native Massachusetts. They have now been turning up. They, the program was announced and the official release into Federal Reserve facilities where all money enters circulation was on April 1st, and it's unclear who found the exact first one. But online auctions began appearing for, with these quarters in them right around April 9th. The first ones to appear on eBay and the Virtual Coin Show, which is a large uh, dealer and collector network on Facebook, the first posts began appearing on April 9th. So two people have now stepped up to claim the $5,000 award that was offered by the Professional Coin Grading Service, or PCGS, for the very first coin to be submitted for authentication and grading. They uh, created a contest which would give $5,000 to the first person who submitted an authentic coin packaged properly. There's a method of mailing it in and and a couple of forms you have to fill out in order to do it. So the first person to get all those things filled out with a quarter, mailed in, will get $5,000. Now, this has actually resulted in a tie for two lucky collectors. Uh, Their last names aren't available, but they are identified as Stephen R. from Topeka, Kansas, and Michael T. from Fairfax, Virginia. And they're now splitting the money, as per the contest rules, in the event of a tie or two submissions that came in too close to reasonably call one or the other, they are splitting the prize money. So each one of them is getting $2,500, as well as their coin back, with a slab indicating that it was the first authenticated and graded. I guess there's two of them, so one of the first two authenticated and graded, and the $2,500. So it's a pretty sweet deal for those two lucky people and it's it shows that you know those W quarters are out there so start checking your change because yeah. those uh they're in circulation and already there's are some up for purchase on eBay and other places if you want to buy them there or if you happen to find one you can also submit it to PCGS and if you do it within within 45 days of the initial release so April yeah. 1st plus 45 days so you're talking mid May so mid May if you manage to submit one of the coins by then they will give you a an early fine designation on your slab they won't give you any money But you will get a special slab that says early find to note that you found within the first 45 days. So there there are still opportunities for getting something really cool and unique from PCGS in regards to the West Point quarters. And I would think
1: besides the $2,500 award for each of these folks, I wonder if there's going to be a response like we saw back when the U.S. Mint released the JFK, was it half dollar at the or the gold half dollar at the uh, Chicago A and the the first one in line sold for some crazy amount of money. Since there's only two of these items in that can't call them unique but almost unique slabs, I wonder if though somebody will make a bid out there for those and what was initially a five thousand dollar reward, now down to twenty five hundred dollars there could be a significant payout if they choose to sell one of those
2: two items. Well, it goes to show, as your article from The Monthly, a month or two ago, alluded to, sometimes the slab is worth more than the coin. The coins themselves are quite remarkable, but if you have one in that very first holder, if you're the first person to get one of those, that will sell for a premium. So if either of those two very lucky people ultimately elect to sell their uh, encapsulated first fine quarters, they will uh, get quite a handsome premium, I would imagine.
1: Absolutely, and, and even though the regular ones are selling for seventy five to one hundred dollars so far. Yep. Coinworld will of course follow the market for those and keep readers and listeners up to date as things develop in that regard. Absolutely, I
2: gotta get I gotta get a Massachusetts uh, W quarter. I have to gotta rep my home state. Gotta get I might even get the uh, the five ounce five ounce round for Massachusetts. Even though, and this is also interesting the runner-up theme for the Massachusetts State Quarter. It's the Lowell National Historic Park. But it was actually almost the fisherman's statue in Gloucester, Massachusetts, which is the town immediately adjacent to where I'm from in Massachusetts. So I—I I, we were close. We almost got our fisherman's statue. But anyway. So we, we've explored your Mills.
1: genealogy and your geography. I, it's, what else it's, now? It's
2: all about me today. Yeah. <laughs> the next thing we have is... Of course, our trivia question to give the uh, listeners a little bit of a background as to how we develop these questions. Coin World, which has issued a bevy of absolutely fascinating products over its uh, long history, used to issue this. This, I think, would actually be a fun parlor and/or drinking game. Coin World trivia. It's actually a, it's a game of little trivia cards that are issued, and you roll a die. And the whole concept is, you know, someone pulls a card out of the out of the stack, and you can get them in different difficulties, and then someone rolls a die, a, you know, standard six-sided die, and there are six questions written on each card, which, like I said, you can get from expert all the way down to, to novice or beginner, you know, you roll a die and you pick a question. So, what Jeff and I are probably going to start doing is rolling a die right here in the studio, but we do have a great question from one of the expert cards today. Now, Jeff, the U.S. Virgin Islands issued coinage under what earlier name? Well, I'm not going to say the answer now, but I do know the answer, and
1: I actually had a discussion with somebody about these coins in the last six months or a year, so we'll be back a little bit later in the program with the answer and a little bit of um, exploration of that kind of item. Now I want to talk to you about the item of the week, and a notable event in this week's history was... The issuance on April 15th, 1920, of the first small cent from Canada released into circulation. Now, that year there was a changeover. Canada had from 1858 to 1920, they used large cent size coin just like the U.S. had used up until 1857. Yeah, you know, They may not be the exact same size, but they're very comparable. And in 1920, they finally got to the point where it was no longer financially viable to issue the large cents, so they had to make them smaller. So 1920 cents, there's a large size and a small size, and it was on this day, 99 years ago, April 15, that the coin was issued the small cent.
2: That must have been quite a jarring transition between a large cent and a small cent, because for the typical Canadian consumer, I imagine you want to go in with your small cents and, and go buy some, or your large cents, rather, and you want to buy something, you get this tiny little thing and change. I imagine that, that in the same way that in 1857, when we switched over, there was some buzz about it. I have to imagine that that was quite an interesting experience for a Canadian consumer,
1: just as I think everyone in 2012, I think it was, when Canada withdrew the cent, period. Yep. You know, There was a lot of coverage, a lot of discussion about what will happen. Charities had uh, drives to get people to donate the coins so they could be redeemed. You can actually, there's some active groups on Facebook of uh, collectors of Canadian coins, most of whom are located in Canada, and they talk about their cents still showing up in banks. People can still deposit them if you have an account and they, um, these folks try to snatch them up as quickly as possible, like to search through them, see what uh, errors they can find, varieties. Some just want the copper that's in the 1996 and earlier, I believe it was. So they are as much ballyhoo as there was in 2012. We can imagine there probably was 99 years ago when the small scent
2: debuted. It seems uh, something of a more forward-thinking policy than... We currently have, wasting quite a lot of money and effort in producing one-cent coins, but we'll see. we'll see if that ever ends up changing. But.
1: And I'm sure that at some point we'll take a deeper dive into that for the listeners. Oh,
2: that will, that will be a topic for sure.
1: So let me transition now. Let me talk about one more thing from this week's issue. It's a tease. Uh, we're not going to tell you the whole story. You have to uh, such a
2: tease, Jeff.
1: I am. You have to subscribe to CoinWorld. It was a really fun story from our London correspondent, John Andrew. There was an auction house in Britain recently, sold a bureau, like a, a drawer, a, a you know dresser. And there were three hiding places in there, hidden drawers in there, inside one of which there was a 14th century gold coin from France. Wow. Really fun, really fun story. Had relatively marginal value in the grand scheme of things. It wasn't, you know, it certainly wasn't a um, six-figure item. But it's fun to see how some of these pieces escaped location until now. It'd been in the family for something like a hundred years, and it came up for auction. The coin did quite well. So you'll have to read Coin World for that story. You do not have to subscribe to Coin World to get the podcast, but you do need to subscribe. To the podcast to get the podcast. So Absolutely. make sure you do that. And so you
2: also don't have to subscribe to the podcast to see the social media content that we feature as well. We feature content from all across the numismatic internet. And I believe Jeff has two posts from Facebook and Twitter for yes. us
1: today. Absolutely. So the piece from Twitter was really fun. Uh, user at Wang5581 forwarded an announcement from the Smithsonian. And, of course, the Smithsonian has a national numismatic collection. There's quite a bunch of items in the collection. Some are on display. Some of the highlights are on display. A lot is available electronically, and some is just in in storage for um, future potential access. So one thing that the numismatic collection has are a couple sets of Chinese and Asian banknotes and fiscal documents. The Smithsonian tweeted out, they have a few Chinese currency projects that really need help do you have a friend who reads Chinese characters? Or you may have a Chinese language department in your school. Please help spread the word. So you go to the um, project page in the National Museum of American History, and you can see that there are something like 6,000 Chinese notes and paper objects that they're trying to get translated, and the staff just doesn't have the time for this. So this tweet helped raise awareness and invite folks with that knowledge to help the museum help expand numismatic knowledge for that reason i thought we should highlight it
2: oh that's wonderful it's it's great to crowdsource information like that where if you need help with a project you need something or it's a piece of knowledge you don't happen to have you can go online and put something up and if someone happens to know and is generous enough to share that i think that's a wonderful initiative it'll give someone the opportunity to really explore Chinese currency and, and leverage their their knowledge so people should absolutely you know engage with that and, and see if they can help out the Smithsonian at all
1: that's great. A- absolutely, and, and again, furthering the hobby. The other fun thing this week that I'll share with you is on Facebook. The Royal Mint announced that the Great British Digital Coin Hunt is back. Last year, 2018, the Royal Mint came out with a series of circulating commemorative 10-pence coins. And these have A to Z. Each, each one represents a different letter of the alphabet and shows that letter of the alphabet. And they were issued in circulation, about 110,000 mintage of each. Fairly low mintage. So for those who want to play along and try to digitally collect the coins, the digital coin hunt was developed last year, and the Mint has brought that back for this year to where you can look for clues hidden among the pages of the Royal Mint's website. And every day they're sharing two clues that it's started Uh, last week i think last wednesday or thursday and that's going to go for about two weeks and then there'll be uh prizes given and it's all sorts of fun to become familiar with the designs and learn more about uk coinage and history
2: that's fantastic sounds like a great initiative it's funny they great digital british coin hunt that's you know we have the great american coin hunt and now we have yeah it seems like it's a longer standing program but that's that's still interesting
1: one's tangible and one's digital and and there's fun regardless of I'll how you do bo- it both
2: programs work well so now it is time for us to answer the burning trivia question that we have which was the u.s virgin islands issued coinage while under what earlier name Jeff, what was that earlier name?
1: Probably last year at the ANA, I think it was. I had a a brief discussion with CoinWorld columnist, a former columnist, John Kralovich, And he suggests that this area of coinage should be added to the Red Book. Now, I haven't checked. The new 2020 Red Book just came out. It should be added. These coins were issued for the Danish West Indies. That's correct. And so now we know U.S. Virgin Islands. We can get into the history of how America came to take that land over. But they are for all intents and purposes, colonial American or early American coinage, because that territory is now American. It certainly would provide a another avenue to collect U.S. coins, if you've already got your VAMs, you already have your your 20th century typeset or whatever, this is another way you can expand the collection, you know, Philippines, Danish West Indies, lots of cool stuff. So Danish West Indies is the answer.
2: More the history of, of that, not only that time in world history, but that time in the history of U.S. coinage production is very interesting because the Dutch still control the Danish West Indies as they control the Danish East Indies and a lot of places in Southeast Asia and the Island chains and things. These are sort of an analog to, or analogous to, the coins that the United States produced for the Philippines. Mm-hmm. While we, you know, between 1898 and 1947, while we had control of the Philippines, we minted coins for them. But we didn't do it for a colony that was specifically ours when we had it. We did it on behalf of the Dutch. So the Dutch contracted the U.S. Mint to produce coins for their colonies. So these coins were minted typically in San Francisco, though some also came from Denver and other mint facilities. And were shipped to these Indies and somehow made their way back. So it's there's quite an interesting story to be told there that touches on a lot of different themes of sort of the exigencies of World War II and the stress that put on a uh, European empire, the role of of America as an imperial power and sort of its interactions with other imperial powers. You tend to think of imperial powers as being competing against one another for territory, but this is actually the case of, to sort of a dark way, collaborating to yeah. to sort of. Yeah. make their colonial administrations run better. And, so it's and quite those, interesting.
1: those Netherlands, East Indies, Curacao coins are one of my favorite areas. The coins that the U.S. Mint struck during World War II for allies, basically. The, yep. the, 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 um, the Netherlands. Aus- Australia, Netherlands. There's the, a great Greenland piece with the bear. All sorts of fun stuff. Yep. We're going to have another trivia question next episode. But remember, you are welcome to ask us a question. Our contact information is available through the podcast page online at coinworld.com. Send us your question. We'll be glad to answer it. Maybe you'll hear yourself in the next episode.
2: So our question today comes from Joshua Long, the proprietor of a penny short coins. He describes himself as a small coin dealer and a numismatic addict. Aren't we all? Guilty as charged. We could definitely a support group for that. He wanted us to know and was curious to know, as a lover of all things numismatic, it has become my passion... And I wish it to become my profession. To my knowledge, there's no certification or degree to obtain. What advice would you give to someone who wants to work in numismatics professionally, possibly for one of the top coin companies, Coinworld, PCGS, NGC, and you know, the big the big names in the hobby? That's a wonderful question.
1: This is the great thing about the hobby is and I don't know how old you are, Josh. Um But regardless of of your age, there are many entry points to get involved in the hobby and translate it to professional experience. I kind of stumbled into it. I had always wanted to write, always been involved in writing from the time I was in third grade to today. And my last year of college, I had read CoinWorld in between there. I I remember getting a subscription back in 1995 when the double die cent was big news and and reading about the state quarter program as that was coming out and everything. So I went to the local library and I picked up CoinWorld and saw that they had an internship. I knew I was graduating, and I'm like, "Hey, this internship it pays." I don't know where Sydney, Ohio is, but I know I have an interest in coins, and it it's a passion. You know, coins are a passion, writing's a passion, and so I applied. And long story short, I did too good of a job because my last day here, the editor then said, "Gosh, we want to hire you. We got to wait till uh, the next calendar year, budgeting all that, uh, but you can do some freelance in between." And so I went back to St. Louis uh, after uh, the 10-week internship, and I did some freelance and eventually came back here and started uh, February 9th, 2004. So it's been a full 15 years. That track, minus the internship part, because CoinWorld hasn't done that for a decade now, but that track's very similar to how you landed here.
2: I did. I had been a CoinWorld subscriber for a number of years. I think I subscribed... I'm late in middle school, maybe into high school. So for, so for me, that would have been around two thousand and eight, nine, ten-ish. I'd first read a copy of CoinWorld in the mid-aughts, probably shortly after you got there, Jeff. And I'd been a, a monthly subscriber, so I received the monthly and not the weekly. But I, I read it every month and I, I enjoyed it and I, you know, it helped me learn a little bit about the hobby. And it really kind of fell into my lap in a weird way, because I was a senior in college. This was last year, so because I'm quite new here, been working here about six, seven months, and I had gotten a copy of CoinWorld monthly, and I had brought it to my thesis desk where I was working on my honors thesis um, for my history major. So we touch on what is best to study for this type of thing in a minute, but I majored in history, which is pretty common for people in this line of work. Anything writing intensive or in the humanities dovetails well into this kind of work. And Uh, Bill Gibbs, our editor, had written a column sort of pontificating about ways to attract young people to the hobby. And being that I was 22, I think I was freshly 22 at the time, I sort of fit the description of the type of person that Bill was seeking to attract or whose interest he was seeking to speak to in the column. And he did quite a good job, but I had a few thoughts about it. As, as anyone might, and I decided to write a letter to the editor. I really didn't think it was going to go anywhere. I just opened up my laptop and keyed up an email. You know, the contact information for everyone is at the front of the magazine, so it's easy to get, and I keyed up an email to him, and I basically sort of brain-vomited most of my thoughts and tried to make them relatively coherent. Well, that
1: sounds delightful.
2: Into, yeah, it was um, it was quite something. I basically just put down a bunch of my thoughts into a few paragraphs, what amounted to the equivalent of a page or two, and I just sent him an email, really thinking that I might get a thank you for your interest, we'll take it under advisement. That's about as far as I thought it was going to go, and then, lo and behold, Bill emails me back that day and says, you know, I I like what you had to say, can we publish this? And I, you know, I was a editor of my college paper, or I had been, and... I wanted every opportunity to get my name in a print that I could, so I said yes. And then I asked if there's any other work to be had, uh, mostly because I was curious about professional opportunities, and I also just, you know, needed beer money. You know, so I asked if there's any more work, and he started giving me freelance assignments similar to you, Jeff. Uh, he gave me a few freelance assignments, which I completed alongside my schoolwork. And I graduated in May, and he happened to mention shortly before I graduated that there was interest in hiring a new editor onto the staff here in Sydney, and he invited me out to interview. I went out midsummer and Labor Day weekend of 2018, I, I got a job here. So yeah. it. I think the takeaway is there are a lot of roads into it. If you don't want to study history or English or something like that in college or if you don't want to go to college at all, there are other avenues. And it's really about the greatest good you can do for yourself. self as a numismatist is to read a lot, learn as much as you can, and internalize that, and then start producing something. Let's go in a different
1: direction just because – Maybe you don't want to go into writing. Maybe you want to uh, be a grader. Maybe you want to set up a show. So the the way that worked for Chris and I was we kind of stumbled into it, right? But there are some organized and exciting paths that interested folks can take. And we see uh, several, several younger dealers who are uh, making a a difference and, and very active in the national numismatic scene. The first thing I think of is the American Numismatic Association's annual summer seminar. There's a 2 weeks session, so you can go one week or the following week or both weeks. This is out in Colorado Springs at the ANA headquarters. It's in June, usually. They've been going on for something like 40 years. Many of the folks, the big names in the hobby today, were summer seminar students in the past, including CoinWorld editor-at-large Steve Roach. He either attended as a student or as a teacher, something like 20 years in a row, 15, 20 years in a row, and that was some exposure that he had thanks to parents that supported him. There were, there are several numismatic organizations that provide scholarships that you can apply for to get to go to the summer seminar if you can't afford it, can't make it otherwise. There are at least a handful, if not more, of clubs and organizations that help promote that interest and get people to those events. So that's that's one path. That's one way. Go to a summer seminar.
2: And I would also say that you're, you're right that there is no certification or degree to the extent that it's not like you want to be a lawyer. You can't just go out and start to be one. You need to go get a law degree and you need to pass the bar. Ditto medicine lots of other fields. There is no sort of formal requirement, but if you are interested in pursuing numismatics academically... Especially in graduate school, there are a lot of options as far as different history degrees you can get. There are a lot of master's and even Ph.D. programs, if you're so inclined, in things like monetary history, economics, material culture. There are many universities both in America and abroad have programs that you can attend and that you can study, and if you have a couple of years, you can try to get into that. And in terms of funding— it really depends, and and sometimes that's hard to do. Sometimes it's not, but you can study coins in a in an academic setting if that's something that interests you as well.
1: And it's it's good that you mention that because uh, of these folks that apply their intellectual pursuits numismatically in the advanced way. The American Numismatic Society, the ANS, has an annual summer program. That's uh, the Eric P. Newman it's Fellowship or something. The The point of the uh, program is to have graduate students come live in New York City and study at the A&S during the summer and work towards some of these broader intellectual goals. There are, I believe, some, some scholarships or, or some things involved in that as well that you can tap into. So that's one path more academically. Another thing you can think about is there's some online courses. There's, I believe it was Carl Newman who created the uh, University of Rare Coins or something. There's just immersing yourself in numismatic literature. If you are an ANA member, you can borrow books from the library, just pay shipping and insurance. If you can't build a a big library yourself, this is one way to tap into that knowledge. Also, in the past, the Professional Numismatist Guild, Numismatic Guild, PNG, has done a program that allows young professionals, young collectors, I believe it's 25 and under that may be in flux. Um, You'll have to check it out, but you sort of do an apprenticeship with several different numismatic firms and they've been doing this several years now and you spend something like three months or six months at a couple different firms or four different firms and there've been quite a number of folks who've gone through that process and because of it have been able to be placed in these professional organizations. So there's all manner of ways to approach this. The key is education.
2: The key is education, and it's also exposure. Knowing, Knowing people can be more than half the battle sometimes, and getting acquainted with people at local coin clubs and coin shows can open up a lot of avenues to people, and Museums, sort of like our um, social media post, the Smithsonian is essentially looking for people who know Chinese and are willing to engage with material. Might not get paid for it, but someone who did something like that or who engaged in that kind of a project could do extremely well for themselves. And the more you sort of immerse yourself in not just the literature, but in the objects themselves, you know, there, there's all kinds of work. There's museum work. You can work at an auction house. You can work as a grader. There, there are a lot of different jobs sure. that leverage this interest. Oh gosh, so,
1: yeah. If you are interested in estate law and you went down that path, mm-hmm. that that helps especially at an auction house. As far as grading coins, the experts always say you got to look at coins. So go to a lot of shows, look at a lot of coins, see how they're holder, see you know, begin to recognize patterns by making the grade published by us <laughs> and you know, which has great color maps of the high points and all the things that you can do to expand your knowledge. There are uh regional shows that often have A mini seminars on grading and counterfeit detection and and other things. You know, if you can't get to the Summer Seminar, maybe a local show will have that. This Central States uh, has done lectures at different show sites and, and throughout places in that arena. There are all sorts of numismatic groups on Facebook and social media. There are people talking talk to other collectors talk to dealers learn as much as possible be passionate be willing to learn be willing to fail be willing to be wrong but learn from that and keep moving forward and it, and if you have the passion you have the drive there's a place for you in the hobby and we need folks like that
2: we absolutely do you know particularly younger folks who are demographically underrepresented It's important for us to be dealers, collectors, writers, in my case. Like Jeff said, there's an enormous amount of opportunity here. And coin collecting distinguishes you as a person as well, and that's something that's worth considering. I wrote my college essay about collecting coins, and I I did okay in terms of getting admitted to colleges. So, which is to say that numismatic knowledge and experience will enrich your professional resume, well, your professional profile, and... Life in general. And life in general, and it gives you something to talk about at cocktail parties, if nothing else. I mean, so, it, there's, <laughs> so there are so many paths that you can take, and no one is better or more legitimate than the other. If you find your interest calling to you and pushing you in a direction, follow that. And look into your interests, and look into the opportunities that exist... And then find someone who's doing some version of what you want to do and shoot them an email or give them a call. Most people like to talk about themselves. If you, you know, need tips or something, there are usually people... Most coin dealers and coin collectors are pretty generous with knowledge. Most. So, the vast majority. You know, if you find yourself in a good position to take advantage of that knowledge, you should avail yourself of that opportunity. And anyone who has
1: a similar question avail yourself of the opportunity to ask us and we'll be glad to answer it in a future episode if you're
0: so chosen
2: we need questions and our contact information is easy to find please send us a message and you know you might even get your question answered by us
0: amos advantage is a proud sponsor of the coin world podcast whether you're looking for numismatic books storage or cleaning supplies amos advantage has you covered visit amosadvantage.com today and now back to the show
2: On that note, please enjoy our interview with Ken Shainer of Osborne Coins in Cincinnati. We talked to him for quite a while about the work of the oldest private mint in the United States, so please enjoy. So
1: joining us today is Ken Shainer, Director of Sales and Marketing for Osborne Coinage. In Cincinnati, Ohio, interesting tidbit about that is Osborne is, I believe, the oldest business still in operation in Cincinnati.
3: We, we are the oldest privately held mint in the United States, and one of the oldest still operating in Cincinnati. There's a few that were there before us, but you know, not very many.
1: Certainly uh, dates back to the 1830s, 1840s. Fascinating piece of Cincinnati history, but also numismatic history. Collectors, I think, would love to be able to work at a mint, see the inside of a mint.
3: i got to tell you, I have been with the company for a short time, but it is as exciting as you think it would be. It's amazing to watch these coins being made and the production process that we've got in place.
1: So talk to me a little bit about the founding of the company, the early days, some of the, the markers of the company's history that come up in lore. I think the prized piece in the vault relates to President Lincoln.
3: Yes, we have the actual dies that created the coins for President Lincoln's campaign coins, and uh, interesting little tidbit: we actually created two dies because at that time he was deciding whether he wanted to go with a beard or without a beard. As it turns out, it's probably a good thing that he went with a beard because he didn't really look that great without a beard. So, and that you know that iconic beard—it still resonates today when you see the Lincoln Memorial and. And the the, you know the monuments in in Washington D.C. and
1: and the five dollar note and the 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 one cent coin. It's fascinating that period of time for Osborne. Cincinnati became the epicenter of the Civil War token uh, production. And that was because Osborne was there and one of their salespeople was heavily involved in that. That's sort of why Ohio has a predominance of Civil War tokens. But we've read an anecdote that was rather interesting that suggests that Osborne wasn't exactly only supporting the union. You want to talk about that?
3: Um as long as I've been here, uh, we've been agnostic as far as our political alliance. Uh, you know, money is green, whether it comes from, you know, a red state or a blue state or from a uh, southern state or a northern state. So it's not surprising at all that we did coinage for the Confederate nation as well as for the United States.
1: The story I heard was that the folks would take the tokens as they were after they were struck and cross the river with them. Of course, Cincinnati, for those of you who don't know, is right across from Covington, Kentucky. They would take these tokens right across the river and then they would be spirited away to Richmond, the Confederate capital, and gosh, they would just happen to get paid in gold for their work. So it's fascinating because Cincinnati and and Ohio was also the center of the Underground Railroad. In fact, there's a museum down there for that. And further east along the river is Ripley, Ohio, where there's a museum to some of the conductors on the, the railroad. So while slaves were heading north, tokens were heading south from Osborne.
3: That's kind of an interesting bit of history, and Osborne created a lot of script or coins for coal mines, for company stores, for the Confederates. We've done a lot of coinage and a lot of tokens for a lot of different people.
1: Speaking of the uh, the coal script, part of that's the proximity, of course, to the American coal region there in Kentucky and, and Tennessee, and you're not that far from there. There was a gentleman at the firm at the time who was looking for a way to, to improve the token usage in some of these company towns, and between merging with some companies in Dayton and buying the Engel system – it ended up or wound up that Osborne produced tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of tokens for tens of thousands of coal issuers, coal stores, coal mining settlements there, mostly, again, in Kentucky, even some in Tennessee and Virginia a little bit. What have you seen of that in the archives?
3: Going through the archives of, of Osborne is you know, it's kind of a treasure hunt. There's some amazing things some amazing finds that we've got there. Unfortunately, uh, you know, a lot of the paperwork and, and dyes and, and such, you know, when, when we moved locations, a lot of that was lost. So it's not as much as it as it could be. But, yeah, we've got several pieces of Kohl's script and company store tokens. And, uh, it, you know, it's, it's it's interesting how each one kind of has its own design and most of them have some sort of a cutout. And that's kind of what Osborne used to keep people from counterfeiting and keep people from making uh, copies. There would be a, a shape cutout, in the token, and each company store had their own shape, their you know their own different shape or their own different uh, mint mark or, or mark on the token.
1: The script area is one of my favorite areas of collecting in Exonumia. One of my favorite stories, actually, I believe the the piece was struck by Osborne. Have you ever seen the movie October Sky? I have not. Jake Gyllenhaal, he plays a high schooler in West Virginia, Colwood, West Virginia. Great movie. Um, Laura Dern, I think, was the teacher. And it tells the story of a young Homer Hickam who would later uh, go on to some renown in uh, space and and literature. Homer, his dad was also named Homer, but the boy was Sonny, his nickname was Homer. He and his friends built rockets and ended up, they were called the Rocket Boys. They, um, they ended up going to the National Science Foundation Fair or something. The The movie plays it up to, to Hollywood levels, but it's it's a really fun story, really great movie. And you can actually get cold script that was used in the company store in Colwood that Homer writes about in one of his books. And Hickam goes on to work for NASA so there are threads everywhere to, to, in the hobby, and, but, but even to Osborne. Yeah, that,
3: that sounds like something I need to, to search Netflix for and, and uh, take a look at it. Where's the future of Osborne going
2: in terms of remaining relevant and making a profit?
3: Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and Osborne is kind of, kind of a company that is, is evolving. You know, we have done tokens for a long time. Tokens are a product where a consumer wants to get something else for that token. So if it's a casino token, they want to get hopefully money. If it's a, um, they may get a car wash for that token. They you know they may get a game for that token. But our business is shifting, and our business is shifting more towards those coins that people either put on their shelf or put in their pocket. The coins people keep and the coins people look at. So we are evolving as a company, moving away from a token focus and more onto a numismatic and uh, collectible focus and that's where our growth is coming from
2: do you notice among the contracts that you get now and, and among the work the work orders and everything else do you notice any sort of thematic trends do, do you find that you have certain repeat customers that are looking for, for similar things do you find that a lot of different customers are seeking out similar designs or using your products towards similar ends, if that makes sense.
3: Yeah, makes it, sense. fantasy seems to be a, a big area. Fantasy with elves and and uh, you know dragons Four and, and that yeah, yeah. that type type of thing. That that seems to be something that that has that has legs. But really, a lot of what we're seeing and a lot of requests that we're getting are to tie some of the designs back into an actual coin so whether you know whether that's a uh, another country backing or you know or, or something that, that would be done for another uh, for a, a currency so it, it would be it would actually have the the blessing of of a country and so you could actually spend it for you know for a, a dollar or whatever you wanted to do but that'd be silly so we're, you know we're, we're seeing the customers ask for that and we're seeing a lot of customers that are asking for nostalgia World War Two World nostalgia seems to be big right now and uh, nostalgia around the the anniversary of the moon landing. You know, those are the types of requests that we're seeing right now.
1: World War II, you talk about the nostalgia for that. Uh, It's funny because that's probably the high watermark, would you say, of Osborne production, production capacity. It was in the hundreds of millions, if not billions, of pieces that Osborne produced, and and that was red and blue tokens for the Office of Price Administration, OPA tokens.
3: So, interesting story uh, about that. Osborne had just ordered several trainloads of metal that came in, and then President Roosevelt basically put a ban on manufacturing of anything that wasn't for the army or for, or for an armament. So they had this metal that was that was kind of you know sitting there, and they couldn't use it. It was basically locked up. Fortunately, the company was able to to get the contract for the uh, the OPA coupons, and those are actually made out of a fiber material. Mm-hmm. Um, so it you know was a little different process for us. But at, at that time we were we were working 24 hour shifts uh, seven days a week and the tokens were going out by the train by the train load uh, you know, just an amazing amount and and we did all of the the coupons for the United States and for Canada during World War two
1: and I, I think you can go to any coin show in the country and find them by the train load now uh, as neat little relics of, of World War II history
3: yeah and, and they were I mean they were really tiny so it's it's amazing to me that they they've lasted this long and it, you know with it being fiber they're you know they're not really as robust as a, as a coin would be but you you do you do still find a lot of them around definitely notice that they do tend to absorb dust yes
2: (laughs) i found them i I found them taped sheets of paper i've just found them in bins and they they definitely interact with the environment in Mm a different way definitely than a traditional metal coin They're, they're fun it's
1: funny you mentioned president franklin roosevelt because the story goes i hear have you heard this osborne at the time did not and, and really never has done much in the way of retail business. You know, I call up and I want to get something from you. It's, it's you provide from other suppliers. They did a series of presidents. And as new presidents came out, they would seek permission to put them on these little metals or metalettes. And the story goes that they sent a request to FDR and – he quipped basically um, I should hope you don't issue a set without me.
2: (laughs) I have to imagine there are probably a handful of collectors that collect Osborne products. I imagine that you could have you know an entire album or an entire you know collection trying to get every you know every token every store card. I imagine it would be next tens of thousands. It It would take an enormous amount of money and quite a lot of time but do you ever have anyone seeking out, you know, trying to complete a set of Osborne products, you have a lot of collector interface in that way?
3: Yeah, actually, um, one of the 800 numbers that we use uh, rings directly into my office. Uh-oh. So, it's, yeah, yeah. So, um, it, almost on a daily basis, um, I'll, I'll run across a collector that's looking for something or has a question about one of, our, one of our sets. And I don't mind taking the phone calls because I love talking to these people. I, and I usually try to gain some information from them as well. Uh, you know, if, if it's a collector and, and, you know, this person's looking to fill in their set, uh, my question to them is, what are the things that you would like to see? What are the new coins that you would like to see? Where should we go? Where should we as a company go? And so, you know, I, I really enjoy talking to the collectors, and, man, there are some people out there that can talk. And they're primarily primarily gentlemen that I talk to, and, you know, they're, they're just fantastic. They've got such a passion for uh, coins and for collecting, and and you know, I just I love that passion. I love to talk to those people.
1: So one of the things that Osborne has done in the last few years is uh, the you talked about the fantasy art. There's a a series of silver rounds, I believe, that are recalling classic coin designs. Mm-hmm. Where are those in production, and what's been the response so far?
3: Uh, the re- response has been phenomenal. I believe you you're referring to the. Um, American Legacy series. Yeah. What we've done on that, it's a high-resolution, uh, high-relief coin, and it's actually got a push-through design. So the front is beautiful, and then when you turn it over, it's a, a beautiful reverse that's very detailed. We modeled these after some of the iconic coins that you know that, that collectors really desire. The response has been very strong, very strong, and, and we only sell those through distributors. Uh, so our, our distributor network uh, will have them Within the next week, they will have them.
1: Okay, where would somebody go to find that? As like a, AppMax or
3: what? AppMax would be the place to look.
1: Okay, is that an exclusive mm-hmm. for them? Okay. When
2: you say classic coins, classic American designs, or uh, do you also do do you also get a lot of interest in world? In the,
1: world
3: this particular design is an American design. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did the the Indian head from the Buffalo nickel. And the uh, the Morgan uh, the Morgan bust from the from the Morgan dollar. I can tell you that the the next one will be uh, Abraham Lincoln design, and then the one following that will be um, John F. Kennedy.
1: So it's interesting because Osborne back in the day did billions and billions of tokens, and it, it was a you know cranked them out as fast as you can. This is a bullion piece. Bullion generally has that low margin, high production run. But you're blending in some of these artistic flourishes with that. Is that right?
3: Yeah. And Osborne, our strength is really not in manufacturing bullion coins. Typically, when when you get a bullion coin, the quality level is a little lower, and the the price structure is such that you know it, it may sell for a dollar and a half over spot, and that's not really our business because our business is in making the, the more artistic coins. So the, the coins that they've come from Osborne are not the same as the as the BU quality coins or the bullion quality coins that you would see. And these are are a proof-like surface. And then we also do a colorized version and we do an antique version.
1: And, and what kind of mintage figures are we talking for these three versions?
3: Um, we're doing 10,000 on the proof version and 5,000 on the other two. So we've kept it relatively small. We thought that because they're not dated with a current date, they're dated with one of the one of the dates of, of the actual coins, uh, we thought this would be something that would have legs for many years. So we didn't want to make the mintage too small, but then also didn't want to make it an unlimited vintage.
2: How's it thing you went about for something you say, more than dollar, the the obverse more than dollar? Did you... Look at any of the original dies, or did you use sort of like a computer scan to try to approximate? It yeah,
3: we we don't have we don't have access to any of the any of the original dies right. because those are held by the, the U.S. Mint. Right. But we did a sculpt on it. So the the way that, that we do this, and, and this is the way we would do all of our artistic coins, we start off with with a, a drawing, kind of a rough sketch. Here's what we want, and then we actually have a sculptor that sculpts the design. From that sculpted design, that's that's how we make our dies. We actually use The sculpted design and and then we will normally make a digital scan of that sculpted design as well but everything starts with sculpted design and it's all hand it's all hand designed it's all hand done so
1: walk me through the process here i have an idea for a coin project or a
3: a metal project I call up Mr. Ken Shaner, and you say what? The first question that I'm gonna that I'm gonna ask is, uh, you know, what kind of volume are we looking at here? We'll do small runs for people for you know only 250 if you're looking at it like a brass type coin. We'll do um, silver, fine silver. Uh, we'll do 100 coins. If it's something that's going to be an Osborne Mint project, we want it to be you know certainly larger than that because we want it to have more of a mass appeal. But but what we will typically do is is you know, kind of talk to the person about their idea. And then we'll talk to our our distributors to find out, you know, are there other people out there that that like this? Are there other people that are interested in this? And from there, then, you know, then we can, we will start um, talking to artists. We've got a team of artists in-house that will work on the initial design. And then we've also got a team of artists outside that we outsource that will do the actual sculpts for us. And, And some of these, some of these artists are actually located overseas. they, they are sculptors. That is their life. They are sculptors, and you know they work on coin projects for uh, for Osborne.
1: So, from idea to actuality, holding it in my hand, what uh, what's the average time frame?
3: Uh, typically, you're you're probably looking about uh, six months from the from the initial concept through the artwork, and then through the minting process. You, you're looking at about six months. So. You know, if you want something for Christmas, we should start working on it now.
1: Okay, I will um,
2: <laughs> get back to you real soon with that.
3: I'm, I'm kind of looking forward
2: to being able to collect five Stark coins. You know, <laughs> what, uh, different <laughs> denominations of Jam Jeff's bust on it. So, like well, you
1: know, well they like that. They've already chosen one topic. I had the topic chosen for them, I guess. That um, a Stark coin would have Mountain Dew, but I, w- I would, <laughs> I would, I would, I would, uh, I would love. You've done the. The Big Mac. So what? What's?
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: I I don't need to do a start coin. I have
3: I have I have the series. Well, I I, I will just say this um, because of non-disclosure agreements, I'm not really allowed to to say anything specific. But we've got some amazing things coming out. We've got some of the um, some of the the things that that you talked about earlier that buyers are looking for, that collectors are looking for. We've got some of those that are right in the wheelhouse there, and uh, some amazing things. So uh, you know, stay tuned.
2: It would be an interesting way, I imagine, to marry different designs too. Like if you love the Flying Eagle scent and the Walking Liberty half dollar, you know, the were the, the and the revers, you know, you could just pair whatever US US or world coin designs sure. you want. I could put, a, you could put frank- a US Eagle on the back of a you know, one of those sower uh, French coins. Yeah, you
1: have a sort of there. a Frankenstein piece. Just pieces from everywhere.
2: Do you find that you do more business when metal prices are Lower or higher, or is there really not a strong correlation between metal prices and the kind of ordering and the kind of volume you guys ultimately produce?
3: We don't see a lot of difference in it.'ll see um, you'll see people move uh, maybe from from fine silver to copper you know when, when silver gets too high. Um, they, they may move down a level. but we don't see a, a lot of difference. There, there's a difference in the pricing, of course because uh, you know the spot price is, is based on when we coin the project. so there, there is a difference in the costing. But it's really not at the volume that our distributors is buying. It's really not, a, you know, it doesn't make that big of a difference for them.
1: So if you brought me into Osborne and said, here's the place, look around. I go out on the production floor. How many presses are sitting there? And how much how much, uh, how much act, action is going on? And is it, um, you know, one, one day a week? Or what are we talking? How busy are uh, things?
3: Osborne is busy every day. Every single day we've got projects going and typically we'll we'll have about uh, forty presses running at any one time. The presses range from a token press producing millions of tokens to a a numismatic machine that is producing you know three tokens in a minute yeah. uh, or three three coins in a minute so it depends on the coin that you want
1: How much of a market remains for things like car wash tokens and some of the you know I know slot machines they've gone to ticket in ticket out, so you know that business is sort of if it still exists at all, is definitely in the sunset phase. Right,
3: we're completely out of the casino business. There's a lot of regulation required in the casino business, and and because of the card in card system or the ticket in, there just wasn't enough volume there to warrant the the red tape that you have to go through to be a part of the casino business. So we are out of the casino business, but we still do a lot of tokens. And actually, that's an area that's growing for us because if you look at a car wash, for instance, let's just use an example. Are you going to use quarters or are you going to use tokens? Well, if you use quarters and someone buys a dollars worth of quarters they're going to walk away with you know one of those quarters in their car and you'll never see it again if they buy a dollars worth of tokens you get, they get four tokens that token's going to come back because that customer is going to have to come back to you or it's going to get lost in a drawer so that car wash free money <laughs> has just made 25% more
2: what future do you envision and has there been any effort on the part of Osborne or have you had any customers come in interested in trying to monetize something like Bitcoin as an example. Obviously that's been a very turbulent investment and a lot of people are still trying to figure out how that works practically speaking. Is there a sort of some kind of future currency or private currency that you think Osborne will have any part in and you see that market shifting?
3: I don't see the market ever going completely away from physical coins, physical that's money. It. You've got a generation that is still, you know, very active that doesn't really trust the, the cryptocurrency. Doesn't maybe doesn't understand it as much. You know that generation likes to hold things. I you know I count myself in that generation. I like to hold money. I like to have it in my hand. I, I like that tactile feeling. So I don't think it's ever going to go away. But as a company, I think if we don't evolve, then then we're going to just die. Uh, so we are continuing to, to evolve. We're continuing to do new and different things with cryptocurrency, including uh, you know helping people out with uh, with crypto wallets. Really, what is, what is Osborne's
2: involvement with crypto wallet?
3: So we've got customers that have basically created a token that would have the barcode on it, and that barcode would be read to go right into their cryptocurrency account.
2: Really, what I'd be curious to know is what does the minting process look for something like that? You get, you know, so someone approaches you and says, you know, I want to create this um, this token, this coin, mm-hmm. so that I can scan it. Do they give you a barcode that you that you sculpt? Yeah. an enormously difficult. Well, and and to how does that like physically and practically happen? Yeah. That, so lasers. <laughs> yeah. Bec- because
3: of the counterfeiting and because you know because of, of trying to be secret with the barcoding, we do the coin part, and then someone else does the barcoding. It's very similar to what happens when you have a uh, a unit to uh, process a Visa or Mastercard. Two keys will come in from two separate places, and they come together to make the transaction. And and it's kind of a, a similar philosophy. We only make part of the transaction; the other part is made by someone else.
2: Interesting. So, so you supply planchet? I'm I'm fascinated. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it. really it,
3: it's really a coin. It's really a coin that we would supply, and then someone else would would supply the wallet that the coin would fit into, and then someone else would do the etching on on the coin for the barcode.
2: Huh? That's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> um, I guess I and it hadn't occurred to me that you know. Even if you're not putting physical money down, you're using a coin to scan. It's interesting because I think that there's this strong association, and it's absolutely an understandable one. There's the strong association that I think a lot of consumers have between a credit card and, and scanning. But it's clearly coins could
3: function as a credit card. Absolutely, absolutely, and, and they also function. You, you see a coins as gift card. If you've been to a Target, you've seen a coin that is a, a gift card. It's got a barcode on the back, or it's got a QR code. On the back. Yes, absolutely. Coins can can still be used even in the electronic currency world. Do you you
2: think that that will be a section of the market that will expand? And do you think that we're gonna be seeing more of that?
3: I'm not really sure on that one. I you know, I'm not sure if it's if it's just something that people are are kind of trying to see if it works or to see how it works, or if it's really got legs for longevity. I you know, I I think it's something that we're we're still trying to figure out.
2: It strikes me as a very unique marketing tack. You know, if you want some of the use a gift card to buy a gift card and if you give them a big silver coin you know mm-hmm. i don't know I, I think i'd certainly be as interested in that as i would be in a little piece of plastic yeah I I
3: think well and, and and that's the idea the idea is that if a company is going to to put their logo on a on something some sort of a vessel you want it to be something that someone's going to keep and someone's going to hang on to and you know cards by their nature are disposable once Once a card is is gone, it really has no value and it has no use and it typically gets thrown away. A coin still has value. There's still, you know, there's still metal there. Or if it's a fine silver piece, there's still the value of the metal. coin still has value. Even, Even when the value of the electronic piece is gone, that coin is still a collectible. That coin is still something that someone wants to hang on to. And the way we see it, that's that company's logo that hangs on for quite some time.
2: And artists could easily pick up commissions designing, whether it's for a corporation or it's for a club or whatever right. it's for. Mm-hmm. You know, it strikes me that that provides a number of interesting medallic art opportunities right. to start to contribute. It, that. and,
3: That's the, and the, crypto, the uh, crypto coins that we have done are extremely complex, extremely complex designs. I can imagine. And, and I mean, it, it wouldn't be, you know, just a – a standard um, two-dimensional, you know, logo type die. It's there's different crevices and nooks and, and I mean, they're, they're literally, and, <laughs> yes, absolutely, and, and they're beautiful. You know, they're beautiful, and, and it is something that someone would want to keep. Someone would want to hang on to.
2: Given Osborn's longevity as a company and their sort of impact on Americans' pocket well, they're directly or indirectly. I mean, you know, all those store cards and and tokens of the Civil War and things, you know, they circulated. So Osborne has had an enormous impact on you know the the way that we as as a nation and it, case you know two belligerent nations at one point as we discussed a little bit has there been any effort to maintain the dyes at all that were once used if you had a catalog of the dyes unto itself i think that'd be a fascinating resource
3: yeah we we have we have some of the dyes um we have actually sold some of the dyes for some of the iconic collections that um, customers have requested so we've actually sold some of the dyes some of the dies and their collectors' pieces in themselves. As far as the dies, we've got a large die storage area. We just moved it, reorganized it. But unfortunately, some of these dies are, you know, they're just gone. They, you know, they may have have cracked at some point or sunk, yeah, and yeah, place. and and someone said, oh, we'll, we'll never do that one again, and, and it's you know, just got it got thrown out. It's
1: just metal. It was recycled and right, melted, right. whatever. Osborne has a tradition or history of striking metals for coin Coinworld coin World issued a series of aluminum pieces in the mostly 80s i believe 70s and 80s and early into the 90s more recently we've done some projects for shows i would love to see if those dyes are down there
3: i would bet that they are um because really into the into the 90s and beyond we've we've got most of those dyes so I would think that the, that they are there. Uh, I'm not sure if they're functional or not. We'd have to look at that. Absolutely, I, I could I could find those for you.
1: So I, I can get my own personalized gold edition of the. <laughs> 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 I'll buy
2: the gold <laughs> of all
1: these different metals that it, we came it, out it, with. It'd be interesting to have
2: contemporary series of these things, you know, re in whatever metal you want. I'm also curious, um, you know, as the dies is a historical resource, and then the history of Osborne as You know, a significant component of the history of at least the Midwest. What interface do you have with universities, museums, other institutions? Do you find that there's a lot of interest in trying to sort of leverage Osborne's history and?
3: It's sort of socioeconomic impact. The in, primary uh, uh, arrangement that we have with museums, uh, we've got some pieces, some actual presses at the Cincinnati, Cincinnati Museum. Mm. But we, we haven't really done a lot as far as working specifically with the museum. Some of our, you know, obviously some of our coins, some of our, our pieces are in the Smithsonian and, in sure. you know, a different museum. Uh, some of the struck pieces. Since I've been with the company, we, we really haven't done a lot as far as reaching out to, you'd mentioned earlier, the Underground Railroad Museum or, or any of the other museums to you know, to, to talk about whether they would want some of these old coins or tokens.
2: Throughout the company's history, how much work have you done for either the U.S. government or the Confederate States government, and I suppose, I, or at least merchants in the Confederacy at one time and you know, foreign contracts, anything like that? So do you do a lot of government work? Do you get any government contracting work or not so much?
3: Uh, we do not do anything for the U.S. government. Uh, the U.S. government mints their own coin into their own coins so we don't do anything for the u.s government in the past we have done things for other governments and uh, other international mints we anticipate that we will do things for other government currencies in the future as well
1: can you disclose what those other governments i I can't what about the uh, do you count among that the series of pieces for the various native american tribes in the u.s and no, That's actually, an interesting yeah, Actually, story. I, I was
3: not counting that at all. Those are coins that we mint for someone else. It's someone else's design that we mint. I'm really not sure how those work, as far as you know, if those are if those are U.S. coins or U.S. backed or sovereign nation. Or I'm not. I I don't know. On yeah, that you,
2: usually so that, that are provided to First Nations tribes. Yeah. First Nations tribes have have contracted the Osborne Mint to produce tokens well, for. Celebrations. Or well,
1: there, 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 there have been a couple uh, companies internationally who've coordinated the release with the organizations of native residents to come up with the designs, to issue them in their name, to distribute them in the different areas of settlement, and then also be sold into the international market. That's what I'm talking about.
2: That dovetails in a really interesting way with the Native American One Dollar Program because tribal representatives from different nations, you know, way into the U.S. Mint and the, the CCAC's decision-making process about that. Yeah. So I, I, That's fascinating.
3: Yeah, and I don't have a lot of information on that. I, I, I don't know how the process works on the back end. Um, the only thing that I know is that Osborne is on the coining side of those.
1: We've talked about the museum activity. You've told me before that Osborne is looking to continue, uh, really expand telling its story because it's the story of all these places and and these events, what kind of thing might be in the work other than you've got a few things at, at the museum center
3: at this point we don't have any kind of plans with any kind of museums or anything like that one of the things that I am trying to do is I'm trying to get the Osborne name out. For a long time, we've been a, you know, kind of Cincinnati's best kept secret. And a lot of that was because there there was a lot of value there, When particularly when we were into the casino tokens. We could be producing a $1,000 coin chip. And, you know, if, if one of those walks, that's, that's expensive. That's yeah. pricey. So we were, for a long period of time, we were kind of nondescript. And uh, actually, if you look at our building, the only thing that identifies us as Osborne coinage is a... Uh, a plaque that's about six inches by eight inches, oh yeah, you awesome blink and you is, miss it yes. if you're going down the yes. street practically so one of the one of the things that I wanted to do when I came in was to build a better footprint, build a bigger footprint within Cincinnati. I want to be the go to mint for anybody that wants to do a coin in Cincinnati and, and beyond for, really. yes yes, absolutely, but in in particular in Cincinnati because it it really bothers me when you'll see someone do a coin and it's done for, you know overseas or done done from another mint, a competing mint and we didn't even get the opportunity to quote on
1: it. Maybe uh, this has done a little bit to at least raise awareness of Osborne and all the uh, the fun history the from back in 1820s 1830s and and all the various tokens to all the way up to cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us yeah. today Ken. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and learn some more about the history of Osborne
3: and I appreciate the opportunity to talk and I mean you guys have a fantastic magazine and, and Love to be a part of it. Thanks again.
0: Thank you, Thank you for listening to the CoinWorld Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash CoinWorld or on Twitter at CoinWorld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to CoinWorld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the Coin World podcast was brought to you by Amos Advantage, your ultimate destination for coin collecting accessories. Receive free shipping on all orders over sixty-five dollars. This is a limited time offer, so shop AmosAdvantage.com today.